Welcome fellow horror hounds and welcome to the latest episode of Talk and Stalk, your unholy home for horror. I'm your host as always, Barry, and today's podcast is going to be devoted to a slasher movie released during the Golden Age, that is The Prowler. Its alternate title, of course, being Rosemary's Killer, released in 1981. Now, as said many times before on previous podcasts, 1981 to me is the greatest year in the history of slasher movies. Um, It's a year that slasher movie after slasher movie were being released. Uh, We have the likes of My Bloody Valentine, The Burning, The Fun House, Hell Knight, and of course The Prowler, among, among others. Now... The Prowler was directed by Joseph Zito, who I actually think did a great job in in directing this movie. Um, It was actually this film that actually garnered attention for him, and uh, it's essentially what landed him the job for directing Friday the 13th Part 4 in 84, which of course is widely regarded by many Friday the 13th fans um, to be one of the best in the franchise. There are actually some out there that would actually say the best. And what really stands out with The Prowler is, I think right from the get-go, this film kind of stands out in a way. Um, because, you know, with this film, we get the flashback, you know, that I think, you know, back to kind of World War Two time. And it basically kind of makes kind of a sly statement about the stakes of war. You know, the killer in this movie um, is a war veteran. And I don't think any movie really, not, you know, not every film could really kind of get away with casting a spurned veteran as the villain. Um, it opens back, you know, the movie opens up in uh, World War during World War Two, and basically a man is being jilted by his his girlfriend. Um, she obviously she can't wait for him any longer, so basically she she ends the relationship via letter, and then of course we get the graduation dance. And of course, you know, we let Rosemary um, actually gets gets killed. She's, you know, she's actually got a new partner now. She's moved on. And uh, the killer, obviously the person that she actually um, jilted, ended the relationship, shows up and uh, kills her and her new lover. And uh, it's a pretty awesome kill, actually, to, to start the film off with. Um, it's a double impalement, much like, you know, with Friday the 13th Part 2 which actually came out the very same year. Um, And, you know, in this movie, it does certainly have some parallels to My Bloody Valentine, which, again, came out the very same year. Um, You know, in this movie, we get, you know, in My Bloody Valentine, there's a Valentine's Day dance that has been stopped for years, and then the dance uh, reopens again, triggering the killer. The killer comes back and... uh, and in this film, of course, we get the graduation dance, which, again, 1945, uh, when the murders happened, and it actually reopens again in 1980, presumably triggering the killer again. And what really stands out with this movie as well are the top-notch kills, courtesy of Tom Savini. This movie has some great gore effects. And, um, you know, Tom Savini, I believe, in the actual, you know, in the close-up kills of this movie, it is actually Savini playing the killer himself. It's actually him pulling off the uh, the kills, if you will. Um, I believe the assistant director, Peter Gugliano, uh actually played the Prowler during the majority of the movie. You know, he was doing the kind of the, the, the stalking around and the chase scenes. And, of course, you know, spoiler alert, Farley Granger, a very established actor... 
um, actually plays the sheriff in the, in this movie. Uh, I don't think anyone would really suspect, you know, not a guy you'd actually suspect of, of being the killer. Um, but it all really kind of adds up. Now, obviously, as I said, an established actor, he was actually in two Hitchcock movies. Um, you know, Strangers on the Train in 1951. And, of course, uh, Rope a few years before that, 1948. Um, so, yeah, having someone like Farley Granger um, in this movie. And I think the two lead stars in this film do a perfectly good job. Vicky Dawson and Christopher Geltman. And... You know, what kind of like My Bloody Valentine, I think what stands out with this film is the killer. Um, you know, with My Bloody Valentine, we get a very unique looking killer. Uh, the killer's a miner dressed up as a miner. In this film, the killer is dressed up as a soldier, a GI. Um, you know, using multiple weapons, uh, be it a bayonet, there's even a gun used near the end of the movie. And, uh, of course, a pitchfork. And as I said, it's really kind of the death scenes in this movie that really stand out. I think the film's handled well. There's some good direction by Joseph Zito. Um, I do believe there's a little bit of... There's a little kind of... A few pacing issues here and there I find in the middle act. The film seems to spend about a third a third of its running time uh, going through Mar Major Chatham's um, house and so forth. Um, I'd love to know where Major Chatham got to. Now, Major Chatham is actually the father of Rosemary, the girl who was actually killed in the opening scene of the film. Um, he's wheelchair bound, you know, he's an old man and... Uh, but yeah, he's actually seen outside the house in the wheelchair during the film and we get, you know, wheel tracks, we can see that he's kind of been around. How the hell did he get back in the house? Because I can't actually see a ramp or anything. Um, and he just completely disappears from the movie. And I do believe the film is kind of slightly kind of implying that he may very well be the killer, despite being wheelchair-bound and clearly a lot more heavy set than, than the killer himself. Um, but he actually does a disappearing act in this movie. Uh, his name, you know, his name is mentioned many times. He's actually seen on a few occasions, but then he completely disappears from the film. So as to what happened to him, I have no idea. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, the kills in this film really stand out. Tom Savini actually considers these... Uh, he considers this film to be his best work. This is his personal favourite of all the films that he actually worked on. And as I said, it was actually him responsible for the kills. Whenever you see someone being killed close up, that is actually Savini himself. Um, so, and also, you know, the setting of this movie as well, I think, you know, kind of stands out. I believe that originally, um, it, Joseph Zito actually wanted it to be shot in Avalon, California, where the film is actually set. Um, but it was actually then decided to shoot the film in Cape May, New Jersey, which he actually felt had a real kind of ghost town quality um, to it. And I think the film was shot over a period of, uh, of six weeks. Now, it's quite interesting, actually, because there was like quite heavy emphasis on the kills in this movie, much like My Bloody Valentine, um, it has some real lingering kills. You know, the kills don't cut away. You know, the camera really kind of exploits these murders for for every second it can get. And, uh, you know, it's pretty... It, it's certainly one of the more hardcore slasher movies um, of its time. And, you know, like I said, much with My Bloody Valentine, it has a killer that really kind of, I feel, stands out um, in this film. And it's interesting because there was such an emphasis on the kills in this film um, is that apparently entire days of shooting would just be focused on a kill 
one kill itself, they basically take an entire day out to uh, to actually kind of perfect perfect that kill. Um, and you know, with this movie as well, um, I believe that it was actually re-released to a handful of. I mean, this is a film that didn't do well commercially. Uh, this film really didn't do very well at the box office, um, but it has actually gone on to achieve a cult following among slasher movie fans out there. This is regarded as being one of the very best of its time. And I believe there was a handful of theatres where this film was released under the title of Pitchfork Massacre that I didn't even know about until quite recently. And it's actually unknown who the distributor was, if they'd even legally acquired the rights um, to the film. Um, and, you know, just talking about the film itself... Um, as I said, you know, similarities to My Bloody Valentine in terms of, you know, there's a dance, the dance is cancelled because of a tragic event, the dance reopens, presumably, you know, triggering the killer. And, uh, you know, in this movie, obviously it's the case of a, a jilted a jilted lover. Um, I actually love the scenes where you actually see the killer dressing up in the costume. They're lacing their boots, they, they butting it up to the top. Uh, you know, they're putting the bayonet in place. I just love them shots. And obviously the film has a few stalk stalk and chase scenes as well. Um, I've got to say the lead girl, uh, played by Vicky Dawson, doesn't have much luck in uh, getting through doors in this movie. Uh, we actually get a chase scene quite early on in this film, actually, that's uh, typically a lot earlier than we usually get chase scenes um, in slasher movies. And, um, you know, there's actually a an awesome death, in fact, um, in the shower, which is, you know, clearly kind of a nod to Psycho. I think Joseph Zito is, in a way, kind of, you know, paying homage to Psycho here. Um, it's great. As I said, you know, um, a top-notch kill, great, great practical effects. And, you know, shortly before her death, her boyfriend is killed, which, again, is an awesome death. You know, uh, the bayonet being plunged down into the guy's head. It comes through his throat. And the kind of the pier de resistance, just to kind of add to it, as if that wasn't enough, the eyeballs rolling back to the head. It, it, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's top work by Tom Savini. And there's also another death that really stands out in this film as well that's actually used on the poster. Um, it's where uh, her name is escaping me. She's kind of the whorish character of the movie and she's kicked into the pool she's in the pool she's kicked into the pool which i believe took many takes to actually do um she's kicked into the pool and of course the killer comes up from the water and actually cuts her throat with a bayonet and you just see the blood treacling down and again it the the movie really focuses quite heavily on these kills it's not like a quick cut away or anything like that it really kind of lingers on the deaths um, in this movie and um, yeah to quickly get on to like the identity of the killer this isn't a film that throws many suspects or anything into the mix and for the the people out there that, that are extremely observant um, during the flashback scene back in 1945 we hear the name George mentioned um, just kind of a passing comment, if you will. Now, you know, if you put two and two together, George is actually the name of the sperm lover and the name of the sheriff in the movie is George. And his name actually gets mentioned probably five or six times during the course of the film. You actually see George on his name badge and it's actually on his desk. 
Um, but still, it, it's something that kind of takes you by surprise because a lot of people probably wouldn't have picked up on the fact that George is actually the name of the uh, the lover, the uh, the jilted soldier. And uh, I think certainly for its time, it's quite bold to kind of, you know, a hero, a national hero, somebody that goes off to war, but then essentially ends up as the villain of the movie. Now, of course, um, you know, like I said, there's kind of a nod to Psycho with the shower scene. There's definitely some echoes of Halloween here as well with the tampering of the grave. They actually go to visit the grave of, of Rosemary and one of the victims of the movie has actually been placed in there, you know, with, with her cut throat. And there's a fresh rose, you know, there's a rose given um, with the victims. And um, again, kind of Halloween, Michael Myers obviously tampers with uh, Judith's grave, actually removing the gravestone. And of course, you know, Annie is actually placed on the bed. You know, again, she had her throat cut also. So there's definitely some kind of like slight echoes and nods to, to Halloween here. Um, and of course, there's a cheap jump scare in the film. That's clearly a nod to 1976's Carrie, a film that I love still to this day. One of the best Stephen King adaptations out there. Um, very definitely directed by Brian De Palma. Uh, there's a cheap jump scare moment where, you know, at the end of the movie, she goes to actually, you know, see the bodies in the shower. And uh, uh, he, his name's escaping me, but the victim that actually had his had the bayonet plunged through his head um, actually comes to life and grabs her. <laughs> it's just a real kind of, you know... As I said, kind of a nod to Carrie and Friday the 13th, if you will, as well, with Jason, you know, Jason drunk, jumping out of the lake, which uh, I'm sure had a lot of popcorn flying back in 1980 when it was released. Um, so I think Joseph Zito actually does a really good job in uh, generating suspense for this movie. Uh, he, You know, whilst making some little nods here and there, but it's not bashing you across the head with him or anything like that. Um, I think what he's made is an effectively good slasher movie. Like I said, I do feel like the film kind of plods along a little bit at kind of a slow pace in the kind of middle act, but it, it, it doesn't ruin the movie to any great degree. And I think, to be honest, um, you know, with the end of this movie as well, we actually get, a, again, a top-notch Tom Savini effect here with, you know, the, the killer reveal being Farley Granger actually having his head blown off. Otto arrives out of nowhere and actually shoots the killer. Um, I'd love to know where Otto came from, you know, if he's discovered the, the art of teleportation by Michael Myers. But he, he just kind of comes out of nowhere and uh, shoots the killer. Of course, we always know the killers in these films aren't exactly easy to kill. And he, he actually shoots, shoots Otto, um, who I believe, you know, could possibly be a suspect for some people out there. I don't know. Um... But then, of course, um, Farley Granger, the killer, uh, George, actually gets shot himself um, with the final girl and uh, his head blown off, which, again, is another scene very reminiscent of um, Tom Savini's prior film, which was Maniac, which, again, has a great exploding head scene. Uh, I think one of the best effects by Tom Savini is Tom Savini himself actually having his head blown off. Um, there's a scene in this movie, actually, as well, that kind of stands out to me as well because of the importance of it. Um, it's where Mark, um, played by Christopher Gallman, is actually trying to get hold of the sheriff. Now, the sheriff leaves very early on in this film for a fishing trip. Okay, 
So he's basically absent for the entire movie, aside from the you know the first few minutes of the film. And he's trying to contact him, tell him about you know there's been murders, and he phones up the cabin where he's supposed to be stopping at. And we have what's quite simply one of the laziest men ever put to film, a guy that clearly can't be asked in going to the cabin and. You know, he makes out that he's gone to check the cabin. You know, he sits there, he puts the phone down and he makes out he's walked out. He's, you know, he slams the door against the wall, you know, giving him the impression that, you know, he's actually gone to check. And he just sits there in silence for a minute or so. Had he have gone to that cabin, he would have realised that George wasn't there. And that would have certainly told the audience that George could be the killer, that George may very well be the killer. But the fact is, he doesn't. So we assume that George is in the cabin. And I think it's a clever little move, actually. The fact that the guy doesn't check, which just leads us to believe that George is in the cabin. This guy's just too goddamn lazy to get off his ass. Um, but, yeah, that would have given the game away. So I quite like how they... Uh, how they actually do that, to be honest. And speaking of Farley Granger, I believe he was actually cast in the film because the wife of one of the film's investors just ha actually happened to be taking an acting class um, with him. And as I said, like kind of during the middle act, we do actually spend quite a long time at Major Chatham's house, which was actually a museum. I think the furniture in the house was all antique and the owners would only allow the skeleton crew to, to kind of shoot. Um, inside that location um, I still don't know why Mark didn't actually check uh, in the room that had the light on I mean you go into a dark house it's kind of like surely the room with the light on you'd at least investigate you'd at least look in there um, and also the kind of significance of Rosemary's body um, I don't quite understand I mean it's obviously it's there as a jump scare tactic you know anyone that's into slasher movies knows that Quite often in these films, you know, the trope is the killer's body, you know, the, the victim's bodies jump up for jump scares later on in the film, be it for a window or hanging down from a tree or whatever. Um, but she's actually been put up the chimney and she actually comes down. I'm not quite sure why that was done, aside from the fact, obviously, it kind of adds as a adds as a jump scare and so forth. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, also with this movie as well. You know, we get a scene near the end, the kind of uh, the hide and chase scene, the stalk. Um, it really does seem to take Farley Granger a hell of a long time to find her. We're in a room that's not really massive and she's just kind of hiding under the bed. I mean, if you were the killer, surely you'd topple over that bed. We're in a room that's got loads of furniture that's clothed and stuff. But it seems to take the killer forever to get through this through this small room. But again, it's really there for, you know... Uh, suspense, which I think Joseph Zito actually does a really good job of, um, you know, and uh, I believe as well with this movie is that there are actually cut versions out there that do actually exist. And um, yeah, the, the, the uncut version is the version to watch. Um, you know, you watch a movie like this to see the gore effects. You want to see the kills um, in all their glory. And I, I definitely think that it's certainly one of the gorier and I think one of the more notable slasher films of the era. Uh, thanks largely to the kills, courtesy of Tom Savini, and the look of the killer, which I think that the killer is quite creepy looking, you know. Um, I believe that Farley Granger as well, getting back to the head shooting scene, actually he had a real tough time with a cast of his face actually being made. Because apparently he was actually claustrophobic. And he had to encase his entire head to make the plaster cast. And he actually hated it. 
it actually caused him um, a lot of discomfort. Um, and, you know, getting back to the, 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 the pool scene as well, which, you know, I think is great. I think that actually took, it was something like 17 or 18 takes um, to actually do. Now, there's actually a couple in this film that actually kind of sneak off to, uh, you know, get it on, if you will. Um, but we never actually, we never actually see him again. You'd actually put money on these two teens actually becoming victims, um, but they're never actually seen again in this film. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, I think The Prowler, I think generally speaking, is I think it's a really good slasher film. I think what probably stops me from liking it just a little bit more is kind of some of the pacing issues in kind of the middle act. Um, it doesn't ruin the film at all. As I said, you know, I think this film has generally got a good dose of suspense. Um, I think the two lead characters in this film are perfectly likeable as well. Um, it really isn't badly acted as well. I mean, you've got to think, you know, slasher movies were being churned out left, right and centre at this time. And uh, there was a lot of bad ones, but The Prowler isn't one of them. Definitely not. Um, but it's good to see that it does actually have, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a cult following in this film, you know, for this movie. And, um, yeah, I, I think as well with, with The Prowler, uh, the music. I think the music's really well done. It, it's a very kind of understated score. You know, it's not a score that's, like, iconic. It's not Halloween or Friday the 13th or anything like that. But the score does actually do a good job of con con complementing um, the movie. So I think, you know, if you want a slasher movie that's got a kind of cool... Um, slash creepy looking killer, a film with some great gore effects. I mean, I think Tom Sabine is pretty much kind of on the top of his game um, with this film. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I really wanted to talk about um, regarding The Prowler. And uh, again, it's not a slasher movie that's uh, overtly sexual either. This isn't, a, uh, this isn't a film that has characters, you know, getting it on left, right and centre. Um, by by no means, as I said, there's one kind of whorish character in the movie, if you will, um, but it just manages to be a pretty effectively suspenseful slasher film that I'm just glad does actually have a fan base out there because it doesn't really seem to be talked about a huge amount, certainly not compared to My Bloody Valentine, which I would put My Bloody Valentine just above it, but to me there's not really a massive gap. Uh, between the two so uh, yeah that's all I really wanted to talk about um, regarding the Prowler um, so yeah thanks to everyone that listened uh, I'll be back again soon to haunt you and torment you and take care and if, if you've liked what you've heard please feel free to subscribe to my channel Talk and Stalk thanks a lot